Well, good morning, everyone. If uh, I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Aaron, teaching pastor here at Riverwood, and I am thrilled that you are here. To be honest, you could not have picked a better Sunday to come, because today you're going to very clearly and vividly hear what Riverwood Church is all about. And if you call Riverwood your home church, this is going to help you know what Riverwood is about, where we're going, what we want to see God accomplish. And I'm excited because when we started this Jonah series, we're doing it because we kind of open sourced and several of you gave ideas and it kind of all converged at this idea of let's do Jonah. And I've just been surprised at what God's done in me through this uh, story and yet also what I've just been seeing God do in you. And I've been surprised at how he's led and how this message has come together. And I find myself excited, <laughs> but also nervous. Because today could be a significant day. I, it might not be. It, it could just be another Sunday. You know, hopefully it's not a strikeout. Hopefully we at least hit a single. But I just had this sense that as this has been working out, that, that today, this, this Sunday, this could be like a triple, a home run. This could be a significant uh, day in the life of our church. And so I've been praying for it in that way. Uh, so... If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to uh, Jonah. Um, I've got a cheat sheet up on the screen uh, in a little bit for you. Um, but as you're maybe opening up to Jonah, uh, just a little bit about myself, if, if you don't know me. Uh, I'm married to Leanne, and God has blessed us with four kids. We've got two girls and two boys. And I've met numerous people who said, wow, two girls, two boys, the perfect family. And so we couldn't have any more. Otherwise, we wouldn't be perfect anymore. We, we had to stop, I guess. Uh, I love my kids. I love being a dad. And I feel like I just have some of the greatest kids in the entire world. In fact, I tell my kids all the time that they are my favorite. Uh, in fact, when Zion was like two, I was like, hey, you're my favorite. And he's like, I know. Uh, you know, like, whoa, wait a second. That's a little arrogant. You know? But I, I tell them, there are a bunch of cool kids out there. I mean, some of them belong to you, and your kids are awesome. But I like mine. I'm keeping them. They are my favorite. However, despite how much I like them, I am not so blind as to think they're perfect. I mean, first of all, they have me for a dad. I mean, that right there, you should be praying for my kids. Uh, this, this is going to affect them for all of life. But secondly... Leanne and I just have a passion to raise up these kids who will become adults, who will know Jesus, love him, and go and just contribute greatly to society. We want them to be amazing citizens. We, we want their neighbors to like them, their friends to like them. And so every once in a while, we'll see something in them that we recognize is not going to help them in life. It, it'll either keep them from being productive or maybe make people not like them. And so we have to bring corrective measures. For instance... My boys, one of whom is sitting right here, and I warned them that I was using this as an illustration, but they have an addiction. They are addicted to screens. Now, not like window screens and storm doors, electronic screens. I mean, TVs, computers, iPads, iPhones. I mean, they almost have like a superhero ability. If there is a screen on somewhere within the zip code, they will find it in approximately 5.4 seconds. I mean, it's just amazing. We call them screen magnets because no matter where they're at in the house, if a screen turns on, all of a sudden they're over your shoulder watching it. Now, while it might be a superpower to find it, it's like kryptonite to them because as soon as they see a screen, Everything shuts down. For instance, their ears stop working. I, I mean, we, we will like ask them something 
and it, it just doesn't register. The ears have just completely shut down. Their memory also goes, like they forget their name. You can say their name repeatedly and you will got, not get anything. It doesn't even register. Their motor skills are deeply affected. In fact, I watched one of my boys, the Olympics were on just the other night. They were folding laundry. It took a long time to get folded because they were locked in. And finally, it gets folded, put in the basket. All right, now it's commercial. Go put it away. And they picked up the basket. They carried it like this, <laughs> bumping into things. Their motor skills are affected. Right, this is not safe for my boys. Now, there is one benefit. If we need to pass secrets, we don't want them to hear things. All we have to do is turn on a TV and we can talk about anything we want. They won't hear a word. But... We don't want our boys' brains to turn into mush. And so we have to limit it. We have to turn it off every once in a while. We're not anti-screen. Obviously, we're not anti-screen as we have a huge TV here at Riverwood. But we just know that too much is not going to help them. We want them to be boys, to go out and play and be active. And so sometimes we have to turn it off. Now, we cannot tell them, hey, go watch the Olympics for a couple hours and then turn it off at 3 o'clock. Right? Because if we did that, it would be like 10.30 at night before they would realize, oh my goodness, it's after three. Like, they'd realize, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I really have to go to the bathroom. I mean, like, you have to set alarms, timers, and sometimes you have to set multiple timers. We need them to turn it off. You see, we have to interrupt their desire for screens because we're trying to do it for their own good. But I'm a hypocrite. Because if you tried to take away my screen, whether it be the screen in my pocket or the movie I want to watch or watching yet more Olympics, and you're like, hey, that's enough. Now, I'm an adult. I'd be nice and say, you know, you're probably right. I'd turn it off, put it away. But inside, I'm agitated. I I'm annoyed because you're keeping me from getting what I desire. Isn't that how it goes? We can readily recognize when something isn't good for someone else. And so we have no problem interrupting their desire because it's for their own good. But when someone tries to interrupt our desires, now we get agitated. We get bothered inside. We don't like it. I tell you that because today we're going to see God interrupt Jonah. And if all we do is make it Jonah's story, we could look at it and just kind of shake our heads. Because we're going to see Jonah act like a little two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. And we're going to be able to shake our heads at it and just go, oh man, Jonah, listen to God. He's doing this for your own good. But what I need you to do is to put yourself in Jonah's sandals. I need you to put on his robe and see that you are a lot more like Jonah than you may want to admit. And that means that God wants to interrupt your desires. Not because he's some killjoy trying to keep something good from you. But it's because he's trying to replace your small desires with something better, with something bigger, with his desires. That's why today I need you to be open to hearing what God wants to say to you because it's going to get very personal. So that's why right now I want to invite you to pray. Father, you know the names, you know the stories, you know the strengths and the weaknesses of every single person that is in this room. And I believe that you love them deeply. No matter what they have done, no matter where they are weak, you love them. And so today, I believe that you have something for them, but it's probably going to mean they need to give something up. And God, that's hard. Because when you interrupt our desires, we get agitated, we get bothered, we get upset. 
And so that's why, God, I pray right now that you would give us courage, that you would help each and every one of us, no matter where we're at on our spiritual journey, to be ready to hear from you. And today, it would not be about what Aaron Bird has to say. It's about what you want to say to these people, these people that you know, that you call by name, and that you love. So God, make us brave today to allow you to remove from us the things that are keeping us from the desires that you have for us. And I ask God that you would help our hearts to beat in sync with your heart, that we would get passionate about what you are passionate about, that we would take up your desires as our desires. So God, interrupt us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you are not open to Jonah, uh, we are going to be in Jonah 4. Go ahead and get there. Uh, But let's just do a very, very, very quick review. We started this series, uh, I guess, five weeks ago. Uh, We did just the first three verses uh, of Jonah 1, and we saw God interrupt Jonah's life, this prophet of Israel, and he interrupted his life with a call to go to Nineveh, to the country of Assyria, to their capital, and to preach against them. But rather than accept the call... Jonah ran. Instead of heading 500 miles northeast, inland, he jumped on a ship and was trying to head 1,500 miles to the west towards Tarshish. And so then the second week, we saw God interrupt his escape. God intervened. What Jonah was doing was not good for him. So often we run to our own Tarshish thinking that's where we'll have peace. That's going to be good for us, but it's not. And God loves us enough to interrupt our lives. And so he disrupted his escape to call him back to where Jonah needed to be. So that's when we got to the third week. We saw Jonah's prayer. This is like the only thing Jonah does right in this whole entire book. He he actually has this prayer of repentance. And so we looked at what do you do? How do you pray to God in the middle of an interruption? Because we admitted interruptions are, are disruptive, they're uncomfortable, but they're often for our own good. So how do you pray? And then Last week, we saw that God interrupted Jonah's expectations. Jonah expected to walk in, preach against Nineveh, and then watch God crush these people. They were evil, they're mean, they're violent, the Assyrians were powerful, and Jonah hated them. But instead of acting like the 8th century gods that the Ninevites worshipped, God did the unexpected and forgave them because the people actually repented. And we saw how there's opportunities that when God does not meet our expectations, it's actually an opportunity for us to begin to see him for who he really is. So that brings us to today. Last week we saw Jonah preach to the Ninevites. They repented. And Jonah got mad. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So Jonah's a little upset. All right, not a little bit. He's quite upset. He's ticked. Any of you ever been ticked at God? Okay, a couple of head nods. Yeah, I have. Oftentimes, we get mad at God when we have bad theology. We often get mad because we don't have a correct view of who God is. For instance, a guy gets in a car accident gets mad at God for allowing it to happen to him. Now, he ignores the fact that he'd been drinking too much, and it's his fault, 
But he still, his theology is that God is a good God. He would protect him even if he goes and does stupid things. And so because God didn't protect him, he gets mad at God. But I want you to notice here, Jonah is not mad because of bad theology. Jonah actually has very, very good theology, especially there in verse 2. You see, he describes God as a gracious God, as being merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Jonah's theology is spot on. That is God to a T. He just described him very, very accurately. So if Jonah's anger is not at bad theology, what is his anger from? His anger is from racism. Jonah has a racist heart. Jonah looks at the Ninevites and he sees these evil, cruel people. The the Ninevites, the, the Assyrians, I should say, were so cruel that when they would invade a country, they wouldn't just kind of take it over. They would butcher the people. They would have find joy in cutting certain things off of bodies. They were cruel. Plus, they worshipped all these gods, four of which we talked about last week. They, they worshipped all these false gods. And Jonah's looking at it going, I worship the one true God. I am not part of such a violent, evil people. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We are better than them. And so he wants God to punish them. He has a racist heart. Obviously, though, Jonah's heart is not in sync with God's heart. We're going to talk about the sin of racism in a little bit. We're going to explain why. But right at the get-go, you need to see this is why Jonah's mad. It's not because he has bad theology. It's because his heart is not in sync with God's heart. So God, because he loves Jonah, is now going to teach him a lesson. And that's what we're going to see starting here in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah has this slight sliver of hope that God is still going to carry out the plans to destroy Nineveh. Maybe it's because of the prayer there in verses 2 and 3. That, that Jonah, you know, cries out to God, this is why I didn't even want to come. You know, these people are evil and mean. And he, he whines and cries to God. Maybe God's going to hear his prayer and will actually answer it. And so with that sliver of hope, Jonah goes outside the city. I, I imagine he climbs up on some hill. He looks out over the valley and, and he makes himself a little shelter. And, and God helps him out. God grows this plant over him. Jonah likes it. It's like Jonah's getting ready for a summer blockbuster. You know, he's sitting there, he's got a widescreen seat, and he's going to watch God bring, you know, like a meteor or like a fire falling down from heaven and crush this city. Or maybe God will open up a big sinkhole and the whole city will just plummet down. I mean, those would be some amazing special effects. And God provides this plant for him, so he's got a comfy, shady spot. I mean, all he's missing is the popcorn. And now he's ready for the show. Well, God's about to give him a show. But Jonah's going to actually have the starring role. Verse uh, 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? For the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. 
angry enough to die. All right, so I'm adding a little drama in there. But you see the hissy fit. I mean, it's like he's throwing himself down in the sand and he's pounding on it. Why, God, why? And you just kind of shake your head like, dude, get over yourself. But if you were in his shoes, how do you think you'd be feeling? Because God just grew him a plant to provide him with shade. And then God cuts it down and sends a scorching east wind to make him absolutely miserable. What kind of God is this? Why would you want to follow a God who gives you something good and then pulls it away? Is he like some Indian giver? Is he really cruel? No. God sees Jonah's heart is not in the place that God wants it to be. And so to help change it, God is confronting his desires. And by interrupting the desires, God is now going to help him see you are missing out. I've got something better for you. This tells me that God is not anti-desire. Actually, I believe that God has created humans with great capacity for desire. The thing is, too often we desire too small of a thing. C.S. Lewis puts it just absolutely brilliantly. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, God has made us for desire. It's just too often we put our desire into these small things and we miss out on the greater thing. Jonah is so attached to this plant. This plant came up overnight, as we're going to see here in just a moment. And yet, it goes away overnight. And Jonah just loses it. He gets angry. So God helps him see what it is that God desires, what, what God has for him that's better. Verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? You see what God desires? God's heart beats for humans. He loves them. He wants them. I've heard so many people describe the God of the Old Testament as this cruel God who just wipes people out. And yet you look at Jonah and you're like, I don't think that's God. He, he loves these people. He cares for them. How in the world could a God care for such an evil, cruel people who worship false gods? Well, that means we have to go back to the very beginning of time. When God creates everything, he then gets ready to create humans. In fact, I want you to hear it uh, for yourself, what he says when he creates mankind. This is from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, 
He created them. This means that every man has the image of God. Every woman has the image of God. Every child has the image of God. And it does not matter their skin color. It does not matter their income level. It doesn't matter their fashion choices. It doesn't matter whether they can run a, a, an Olympic marathon or they're stuck in a wheelchair. It doesn't matter their, their health status or their relationship status or, or any of that stuff. The image of God is upon them. If they are human, the image is there. Now, if we keep reading in Genesis, if we were going to a couple more chapters, we would see Adam and Eve sin. And when they sinned, when they rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit, sin crashes into the scene and it infects everything, which means it infects the image of God on humans. And so the image, it's been marred, it's been blurred, it's been distorted, but it's still there. It has not been removed. And so the reason Jesus came was to restore the image that's already in humans. This is why God is passionate about people, including 120,000 Ninevites who were evil, cruel, and worshipped false gods. This is why racism is a sin. Because it is not valuing the image of God within this other person. It is devaluing them. Right now in our uh, nation, there is a uh, tension that has been existing. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, right now the black community is not getting along with police officers in cities all around our nation. Imagine though what the conversations would be like if 100% of police officers saw 100% of black people as having value because they have the image of God. And imagine if 100% of the black community saw 100% of police as having value because they bear the image of God. Suddenly, the conversation would be incredibly different. In fact, there would be no tension at all. There would actually be incredible peace because there would be respect, there would be love, because you are valuing this person because the image of God is in them. Yes, the image might be distorted. It might be blurred. They may be doing things that are not right. But if you gave respect, love, and you valued them because they bear the image, the picture would look incredibly different. But because of our own sin and our own selfishness, we engage in racism. We don't see people for who they really are. And we devalue them. And that is a sin. And that's what Jonah was doing. But Jonah's sin here is not just racism. Jonah's sin is also that his heart is not in sync with God's heart. And God uses that plant to help Jonah see that. And he sometimes helps us see it too. Last night, I'm trying to finish up stuff for uh, this morning. And I'm trying to upload some things uh, so that we could have them for the, the screen. And I'm trying to download some other things. And my internet kept going in and out. I was frustrated. We get frustrated when the air conditioner goes out. Or, or the, the car has to go back into the shop. Or, or we go to the store and they won't give us our refund. You know, we have all these things happen. And yet we get so incensed about that. And we barely shed a tear at the injustices in the world. 
We're a lot like Jonah. More than we probably care to admit. Because you desire this over here. And when you don't get it, you get bothered, get agitated. And yet your heart is not breaking for the things that breaks God's heart. His heart is passionate. It's beating for these spiritually disconnected people. And we're upset because this isn't going well. That's why today I want to invite you to walk away with two things. The first is I want to ask you, what is your plant-like desire that is keeping you from desiring the things that God desires for you? Let me say that again. What are the plant-like desires that you are holding on to that are keeping you from desiring the things that God desires for you? You see the plant was tied in with Jonah's desire for comfort. What is it that you're seeking your comfort in? Maybe you've been saving money. You, you, you want to put new carpet in the house or, or you're, you're saving for a new car. And all of a sudden as I'm talking, God right now says, that's your plan. That's what I want you to give up. And, and right now you're fighting him. You're, you're agitated because you feel like God's interrupting your desires. But he's saying, your carpet can last a couple more years. Your car has another 50,000 miles in it. I want you to give this up and I want you to give it over here. I want you to bless these people. I want you to do this with it because I have greater desires for your life than just carpet. And it doesn't mean the carpet's bad. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't get a new car. But if that's where you're seeking your comfort, maybe God's wanting to cut it out for your good. A lot of us, we seek our comfort in our addictions. Maybe your addiction is screens, like my boys. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's a substance. You, you, you seek your comfort in this. What I want to encourage you to do is to cut it down. Cut it out. Don't wait for God to send a worm. If you won't cut it down yourself, I'm going to pray that God would love you enough to send a worm but don't wait till then. Through the gospel, get up, apply the gospel to your life, cut this thing out and say nothing before the Lord. Christ before me, the world behind me, no turning back. It's all about him. So cut it out. Now, it's difficult to just do it on our own. Many of us have been seeking our comfort in these things. Our, our identity is, is attached to them. Oftentimes we need help. And so that's why I'm going to challenge you. If you're brave enough, I just want you to write on your connection card, my plant is, and you fill in the blank. Now that's risky, because you're exposing yourself. But I want to pray for you. I want to partner with you. I want to help you in this. Because I desire for you to be fully devoted to Jesus, so that God can re image, re reshape that image of himself within you. So that you can go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. But you can't do that if you're holding on to these plants. If you're seeking your comfort in these other things. So what is your plant? What's God asking you to cut out? And if you're brave enough today, would you let me in on it? And maybe you don't, you're saying, Aaron, I don't know you. I, I don't know if I can trust you. Then find someone else. Find someone else. Say, hey, this right here, this has become my comfort. This has become my plant. And I'm sensing God through the Holy Spirit saying, this has to go. And so I want you to help me with this. 
partner up with someone so that we can cut these things out so we can get after the things that are on God's heart. And that leads us to the second thing I want you to leave with today. The second thing I want you to have resonating in your head is that people matter to God. This is what God is about. Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save the lost. In fact, when Jesus was walking on this earth, he would tell stories. We call them parables. They're stories with a point. And in Luke chapter 15, he tells three parables that all have the exact same point. You'd think after the third time, it's like, I think I'm getting what you're saying. And every single time in each story, something was lost and then it was found. And there's great celebration. In fact, listen to what Jesus says at the end of the very first one of these stories. It's Luke 15 verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It isn't that Jesus doesn't care about righteous people. He sees that the image of God that was placed in mankind has been blurred, marred, distorted by sin. And Jesus has come to restore it because it then opens up the doors. It allows people to come back into a relationship with him. And that is what Jesus is passionate about. People matter to God. That means that your elderly neighbor matters. Your atheistic coworker matters. The stressed out girl at the grocery counter matters. The arrogant guy in the line in front of you at duos matters. Your cousin who's been rebellious their whole life matters. Those students that are coming to Wartburg's campus in a week matter. Every single person who walks in that door matters. And we cannot let these plant-like desires keep us from loving them and welcoming them in and seeing God do what only he can do in their life. People matter to God. Eight years ago, uh, this, I had my Jonah moment. I had this call into church planting. But I fought it. I, I didn't run for Tarshish. But I doubted my capabilities. I didn't think that I had the leadership skills. I didn't think I had the preaching skills. I, I didn't think I had the, the charisma. I, I mean, you could see these like church planners. And, and they were just these, wow, driven guys. And I just didn't think I fit that profile. And so I had a lot of doubts. But it was very clear and vivid what God had said to me. And so... Being a little nerd, I did what nerds do. I began to learn. I started reading books. I listened to podcasts. I, I went to conferences. I even went to Kansas City and did a year-long leadership residency at a church plant. I just tried to learn anything and everything I could. And what I discovered was there was this like subculture of Christianity all about church planting. And I began to love it and soak it in. And I heard some amazing things. But I also began to hear things that, that didn't sit well with me. I would hear about these churches that would, that would start. And they'd sometimes start with hundreds of people. And you just kind of sit there and go, wow, how'd they do it? But the more you started investigating, what you would discover is that almost everyone who came had just come from another church. And they were simply coming because this church was cooler and they did Sundays better. And no one who was spiritually disconnected was finding Jesus and beginning to follow him. And so they just didn't sit right with me in that. And so I began to pray, God, would you help us reach the spiritually disconnected? 
I don't want to just start a church that just ends up with a bunch of Christians and we don't see anyone begin to find Jesus and follow him. Because Jesus, I think your heartbeat is for the spiritually disconnected. And so if that's what your heartbeat's for, I want to beat for that. So God, please, don't just send us a bunch of Christians. Help us to actually reach the people who need you. And so that began to be the heartbeat of this church. And so then we moved to Waverly. And people would inevitably ask, why'd you move here? And we'd say, well, we believe God has us here to start a new church. And we would be told more than once, Waverly doesn't need any new churches. We've we got all the churches we need. I mean, you've got every type you could possibly want. If you want a contemporary church, we've got some of those. You want traditional, we've got that. If you want mainline, we've got that. If you want big or small, we, we've got it all. And if some way you can't find what you want in Waverly, all you have to do is drive 20, 25 minutes down to Cedar Falls, Waterloo. You've got everything you need. We don't need another church. So I felt myself having to like give an excuse for our existence, for our purpose, and so I began to tell people this. We are here to reach those who don't have a church home. In Waverly, somewhere between 30 to 40% of people attend church. But let's even up that. Let's increase that. Let's say that 50% attend church. And, and of those 50%, all of them are absolutely passionately committed to following Jesus. That means there is still 50% who don't attend church and many of them may not even know who Jesus is. They've heard his name. They use it as a swear word. But that's about the extent of it. That's who we're to reach. That's who we're here for. And in fact, I just want God to give us 10%. 10% of the spiritually disconnected. Well, if Waverly is a community of 10,000, that means there are 5,000 people who don't know Jesus. And if we reach 10% of them, that's a church of five. Hundred, And in Waverly, that's a big church. Now, I want to help you interpret this. Our vision, our goal is not to become a big church. Because we could have 500 people come. If all of them are already Jesus followers, it would be a wonderful celebration. We'd have fun worshiping God, but we haven't accomplished God's heartbeat. We haven't reached the spiritually disconnected. Our passion is to reach the spiritually disconnected. So great. Send those people. But they've got to get on board and help us reach the spiritually disconnected because that's who we exist for. So our goal is to reach 500 people who don't know Jesus. Now, this could take us 10 years, 20 years. Who knows? The goal, though, is to reach that 10%. To do that, we might become a church of 800, 1,000, 1,500 to reach those 500. Or... God uses us like an axe church where, where he's sending. And so we see people come to know Jesus. They get baptized. They're growing their faith. And then suddenly they're having their Jonah moment saying, I'm feeling called to go someplace. And so we're sending them to go plant churches in other places around Iowa, in other cities around the nation. We're even sending them to other places around the world. And so we might see the vision reached, but we might only be a church of 150, 200, 250. It doesn't matter. We don't have a goal for what size of church we want to be. We have a goal to reach the spiritually disconnected. We want to reach the 10%. That is what we are about. But for us to accomplish it, we cannot be caught up in plant-like desires. That is going to keep us from really being passionate about this. This is why we need God to do this deep work in us so he can do this great work through us. 
But when you see someone's eternity changed, there is so much joy. You look at what you used to desire and you think, how in the world could I have held so much to that? Suddenly it looks like mud pies made in the slum. And you've given it up and you've seen what the holiday that God invites you to is like. Now it won't be easy. Just this last week, I heard John Maxwell at the Leadership Summit say that everything worthwhile is uphill. I believe this is worthwhile. It's going to be an uphill battle, but it's worth going for. But John also said, the problem is, while we have uphill desires, we have downhill habits. This is why we've got to cut down our plants. We've got to apply the gospel to our life and remove them so that we can begin to move into what God has for us. God, I believe, wants to use each and every one of you, no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, no matter what your age, no matter what your background, no matter what your experience, he wants to use you to move us uphill and reach the 10. That's why I invite you to do the hard thing, to do the brave thing, to allow God to cut the plant out so that he can interrupt those desires and give you bigger desires. Because this is who we are. This is what we are going to do. This is our vision. This is Riverwood. So God, I just pray right now that you would help us to achieve this goal. This vision, I believe, is yours. And so God, would you let us have the joy of seeing you reach the 10%? We can't arm twist anyone into anything. Only you can open eyes to the gospel. Only you can truly draw people. But what you'd call us to do in the scriptures is you say that anyone who lifts up Jesus, that you will then draw all men to him. So that is why God, we lift up Jesus. We ask you to do what only you can do. But God, I believe that before we even begin to reach any of these spiritually disconnected, we have to confess ourselves that there are moments where we are also spiritually disconnected. Here's Jonah who, who knew you. He had good theology. And yet his heart was clearly not in sync with yours. God, I confess that sometimes I am more like Jonah than I want to admit. That my heart beats more for myself than for the lost. And yet you love these people. And I was one of them. I was spiritually disconnected. And yet, Jesus, you came for me. You came for us. But you don't want us to stop there. So that's why, God, I ask that you help us. You would empower us with your Holy Spirit to allow you to cut out the things in our life that are not letting us be in sync with you. God, I pray right now for anyone who's here that does not have a vibrant, growing relationship with you. Maybe it's because they've been spiritually disconnected their whole life. And as they're hearing this message, they hear your heart for them. And they're beginning to realize that Jesus, you went to a cross to die for them. That it isn't just some Easter story we celebrate every spring, but it's a story that impacts our every day and every part of life. And so I pray that right now, Lord, you would help them to confess their sin and surrender their life and that they would begin to follow you. But I also know that many of my brothers and sisters in this room have been following you. They've, they've had a moment of, of confession. They've confessed their sin. And yet they've been so entangled in the sin that so easily gets them in this life. We've, we've clung to our plants. And right now you're calling us to give them up. You're calling us to plantless living. So God, give us that bravery. Give us this. That's why right now, God, I just... I just want you to minister to your people. And so God, as I go silent, 
as the music plays, would you through your Holy Spirit just draw out the prayers of your people that right now that you would hear their prayers as they pray for you to help them to give this up, whatever their plant might be. So Father, hear us right now as we confess. God, I believe that you want to remove this thing from us so that you can begin to replace it with the desires that you have for us. Father, your desire, your heart beats for your glory because that's where our joy is found. But your heart beats for those who are lost because they are not giving you glory. That your image upon them has been marred. It's, it's blurred out, but it's still there. So God, help us to be the people who will love like Jesus loved and go and live like Jesus lived. And we would be a blessing to this community, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family. You would use us to achieve great things that one day when, when our day comes to an end and, and our bodies in a casket and people gather together, there would be actually much rejoicing because people have found life in you because we were willing to make the uphill climb to give up our plant and let you do something great through us. So God, for us to see that day, it begins now. That's why, God, we ask for you to empower us, to help us. That today wouldn't just be about confessing this and then we go right back into our everyday. But that right now as we confess this, we're taking you with us into our everyday. And we would see you accomplish something great through us for your glory and for our joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this together. Amen and amen.